Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 14, where we're traveling to 1956 and the 13th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Ernst Toch, for his Symphony No. 3. All right, Dave, I know you're a huge Toch fan, <laughs> so Ooh. tell us what you know about Toch. Uh, the only thing I knew about him really before doing the deep dive here was the geographical fugue, uh, because that's kind of a famous piece and something that we would sing in oral skills. Uh, Lake Titicaca and the uh, Great Mississippi and the uh, whatever. Yeah, clearly you know it well. well I, I, yes, it's, it's, I'm a little rusty. I haven't, haven't taught that in a while. Uh, but it was, we could play a little bit of it. You yeah. think we should let people hear it? I yeah, let's play a little of it. Well, okay, let's hear a little of the geographical feud. So you, as you see, it is kind of catchy, and uh, that's that's how people probably know Talk's name. Uh, otherwise, I didn't know him. I knew he was an Ernst, like Ernst Bloch and Ernst Talk, uh, kind of the two Ernst and Ernst Krennic and Krennic, yeah, a couple of Ernsts. Uh, but that's about it. So uh, I didn't know that he was really American. You know, became an American citizen, for example. That was something, and really had a big life here, teaching at USC and stuff. So I didn't didn't know too much. How about you? Uh, about the same. Yeah, I knew the idea of this uh, spoken chorus that he kind of pioneered. And I knew the geographical fugue because I performed it. You know, it's, so you it's know it better than I do, probably. Uh, what well, was one of those novelties, like as an undergrad, yeah. you know, putting together concerts. It's like, hey, we can throw this in. We don't have to be able to sing. That's so, right. of course, I was right. As a pianist, I was all about that. Um, and then I knew he was an American composer. I knew that he had that life in America. But... If you'd pushed me to name any of his music beyond the geographical fugue before we listened to this and started kind of studying his music, I don't know if I could have pulled anything. No, no. So another one who's sort of fallen off the radar. And you, the, the, when we get to the end of the hit or miss, there's an interesting quote from New Grove that kind of explains maybe why he has had that situation. But uh, I just think this is also fascinating because it's another third symphony. There's something about the number three in our Pulitzer. You know, we've American had, Symphony is the yeah, third symphony. We had Piston, yeah. we had Ives, and now this is our third, right? I think that's the third yeah. one. So there's something. But other famous thirds. I mean, Copeland didn't win for his third, but yeah, probably his most famous symphony is his third. Roy Harris. We've talked about Roy Harris is our favorite yeah. third symphony in America. Yeah. yeah. So something about the number three here, our lucky number three. And uh, Ernst Toch got his moment of fame here in 56. But uh, apart from that, yeah, what else do you know about his life or anything? He had kind of an interesting life, I'd say. He did have an interesting life. I mean, uh, probably from the name, you can tell he's German. <laughs> yeah. So he... Uh, Viennese. Actually grew up in Vienna. Yeah, so he's a, an Austrian composer there with all of the kind of greats of his age. Um, as a young man 
getting to know all these great composers. Uh, he really becomes popular after World War I uh, as really kind of an avant-garde composer. That's when he writes the Geographical Fugue and he writes these kind of spoken pieces that were uh, very popular. In fact, uh, one of the early performances of the Geographical Fugue, John Cage is there. Oh, really? Wow. And the reason we have it in English is because Cage and Henry Cowell wanted to translate it and bring it into English. Hmm. So, I mean, all these kind of connections with the avant-garde, which is fascinating. Now, I don't think about him as an avant-garde composer. No, no. Which is a totally, totally separate thing. Yeah, big, well, you're, I think you're heading it to it. A big part of his identity is being Jewish, being a Jewish composer. And yeah. having to flee in 1933 with the Nazis uh, rising and so take over. And so then moves to America eventually. Yeah, comes to the United States. Um teaches i think he was first in new york and then ultimately lands in california like so many of the the jewish german immigrants from both austria and germany who come to the united states they land in california and there's a huge immigrant population there of composers yeah he got a job at the new school of social social research in new york i don't know what that is but then moved to la in 1936 and taught at usc in 1939 basically until the end of his life and was became a citizen in 1940 so uh Pretty interesting, uh, but not unusual path, I suppose. Your Schoenberg could be kind of seen in a similar way, grow up being part of the whole fin de siècle culture in Vienna at the turn of the century, and then having to leave as well. So, uh, pretty similar. I wonder if they knew it. They must have known each other at some point. Oh, I'm sure the German immigrant community yeah. in California all knew each other. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So quite a lot of output as well. Many uh, big orchestral works, symphonies, operas, uh, and then film scores. I know you might find that interesting. He was had quite a. He was kind of disappointed that he had more success. Yeah, he came to Cal. That's that's why he comes to California to write film music, and he never. He, he's not. So we could compare him to Korngold, who's another Austrian composer who flees and comes to the United Austrian States and Jewish has huge composer. success. Yeah. Another Jewish composer has huge success in the film composing world and uh, Ernst talk really doesn't uh i think <laughs> i was looking before this i was like what is he known for for his film scores and it's like uh, he wrote some music for the movie heidi that's like what he's known for i'd never heard of any of the movies that he wrote for at all well of course that's not surprising since i don't know much since you don't watch movies, movies. <laughs> i don't watch movies much but uh <laughs> but even then yeah nothing famous at least i know who Korngold is and some of the movies he wrote for um, yeah so very disappointing in terms of being a successful film composer, um, I think you kind of see that throughout his life, right? He kind of gets overlooked in a lot of his life yeah. in terms of his compositions. Um, and in fact, I was fascinated, and we can link to this when the, the episode drops, but uh, his grandson even published in The Guardian a couple of years ago an article saying, don't forget about my grandfather, the forgotten <laughs> Jewish oh, composer. Talk. <laughs> yeah, see, well, we're, we're helping to bring, bring Toch's name back into the... The uh, music parlance. We're, we're trying our best here to bring some, resurrect some of our Pulitzer Prize winners. Well, talking about the piece, maybe we should uh, move to telling the story a bit. Telling the story. So fascinating to me about Talk is uh, he's known as this avant-garde composer. So 1920s, 1930s, interwar period, he's writing at the kind of cutting edge. He comes to the United States, and then he starts writing these symphonies. And basically between 1950 and 1964, he writes all of these symphonies, which are basically not avant-garde at all. No. They're very 
late romantic, post-romantic, lush, rich, what you would expect a Austrian composer who had lived 50 years prior to be composing. Yeah, so a little bit out of his time. And this this happened to a lot of composers. Think of Hindemith as another good example. If you listen to his early music, it sounds almost nothing like the... 150 sonatas for every instrument that all sound the same. <laughs> I, I, I'm spe- saying that as a Hindemith fan, uh, but it, 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 there's a certain, I don't know if you just know your market or you just kind of grow out of the avant-garde-ness of your existence or something happens. But you know, when this symphony comes around and uh, copyright, well, it's commissioned by the American Jewish Tercentenary Committee of Chicago in 1954, and then was premiered in 1955 by the Pittsburgh Symphony with William Steinberg, who actually uh, did conduct my favorite recording of Hindemith, uh, Matisse der Mahler. Very good performance. Uh, but this, uh, so December 55, and then awarded the prize in 56. Uh, it's, uh, you know, w- William Steinberg was another Jewish conductor, and so there's there's a certain connection here, I think, that helps bring this some notoriety. Well, and kind of underlying the first three of these symphonies, scholars have kind of looked back and said that he's basically rehashing his experiences as a Jewish citizen having to flee mm-hmm. during the first, well, before the First World War, but f- having to flee and coming to London and then to New York and to California and making a sonic diary, basically, of those experiences. Uh, in these first three symphonies. So this one is right in line. So you can see why it would be something attractive to the Jewish American Jewish Tercentenary Committee uh, and then also interested to uh, Jewish conductor. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the at that premiere in 55, like, here's the concert. I always, we always like to talk about what was on the concert here and get your reaction to what it was programmed with. So the first half of the program was Fidelio Overture by Beethoven and then Schumann's Piano Concerto. And then this, this was Pittsburgh Symphony. And then the second half was Franck's Symphonic Variations for Piano and Orchestra. And then the Talk Symphony, uh, Symphony in Three Movements, World Premiere, was the set was right at the end so I, that's kind of not at all how we do things now is it putting no, the new work bizarre. at the end yeah you, you you put the new work at the beginning yes so it, pe- so people have to stay so they hear what they want to hear yep yeah they want to hear beethoven so you put beethoven at the end right you don't put the new composer yeah but i also think if you look at the the lineup there it kind of shows stylistically where this symphony really fits i yeah. mean it doesn't seem out of place next to Schumann and Beethoven and Franck at all. No, no, it fits right, fits uh, in pretty well, I'd say. So our good friend Chalmers Clifton yet again has his 1956 report, and he says to the committee, and I think you have some info on the who was actually on the committee. Uh, here are the three choices. So he says the talk. Who he was a doctor too. He actually had a PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he came here and it says this symphony is recommended as one of his finest works of sure craftsmanship, contemporary in feeling, without self-conscious striving for the new in the original, beautiful and brilliant in orchestral sound. It may be said that Dr. Toch's métier has mellowed on this side of the Atlantic <laughs> and that symphony number no. three is an eloquent and persuasive example of his later style. So there were only two pieces that were 
up this year. And the other one was Roger Sessions' Piano Concerto. That's a fascinating pairing. Yes, yes. And Chalmers Clifton wrote a kind of a little little slam on Roger Sessions here. He says, as to whether his music is finely constructed, careful in detail, and thoughtful, as to whether the result in sound is either vital or ingratiating is the subject of much discussion. A large mm. group of musicians who admire his knowledge and integrity wait for convincing evidence of music that there is more than complex construction and ultra refinement of, found, of sound. The Sessions Concerto in question did not have these desired qualities. Wow. Okay, Ouch. that's really fascinating. Yeah. Once you know who else was on the committee with Chalmers Clifton. Okay. Because the second name was Aaron Copeland. Really? And Aaron Copeland and Sessions in the 1920s had... Uh, the Sessions Copeland concerts. They yeah. were uh, well-known uh, in that kind of connection. And then the third is Miles Kastendiek. Who? <laughs> exactly. Uh, he was head of the English department at the Poly Prep Country Day School in Brooklyn. I know somebody who taught at the Poly Prep Brooklyn Academy. Anyway, that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Your connections are <laughs> incredible. Uh, he was also, for these purposes, a uh, member of the Music Critics Association, uh, the founder and first president of the Music Critics Association. So that's, I think, how he got on here mm. was mm-hmm. he was a part-time music critic. Yeah. Uh, and also, this is my favorite little factoid. He was the author of England's musical poet, Thomas Campion. <laughs> wow. So I guess a, a ultra-intellectual, complex piano concerto is not going to get is not going to fly with, attention. with uh, Miles Kastendiek. <laughs> no, no. Wow, that is interesting. So even though I'd say the talk, as we go behind the notes soon, I'd, the talk is fairly complex in a lot of ways, musically, uh, it's, it, but certainly not in the same way as they're describing the sessions. Well, and it's not the avant-garde-ness. Yeah. I mean, that that quote that he's mellowed on this side of the Atlantic, I think is exactly what happened mm-hmm. and you see in these symphonies. So yeah. maybe it's time for us to go behind the notes. Behind the notes. So here we are with the third symphony, and how many movements? Three movements. Yes, I think this is the theme of today's show: is three, the number three, as we record on Friday the thirteenth. Uh, well, it's a slow movement, a slow movement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then a fast movement. Right. So it, it, this has that same. I want to say, to you, does it sound a little bit, the first movement kind of sounds that like that piston beginning. It's got that slow, kind of dissonant, motivic. Slow build up. Yeah, slow build up, kind yeah. of same style as a lot of these symphonies from this period seem to have. That slow intro, and it's sort of real soft. You don't know where it's going. Uh, and then it eventually will pick up. But to, I don't know, to you... Certainly to me, the, the, the instrumentation was kind of fascinating about... Uh, there's a to me, that's the most successful part, yeah. is, the, is the orchestration and how he uses the, the orchestra. And that's what got the biggest kind of comments whenever it premiered, was especially these new instruments that he threw in there to create new sounds. Um, he asked for the organ, yes. so automatically that's going to make a huge difference in terms of the sound of the symphony. Um, uh, they ultimately end up using a, a Hammond organ, yeah, which, which is, is a very wild. distinct sound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really wild. Um, a glass harmonica. 
Didn't Mozart write stuff for glass harmonica? Mozart wrote stuff for glass harmonica. So instead of using, um, you know, the vibraphone to get that kind of shimmering resonant effect, he asked for a glass harmonica, which is, you know, spinning bowls that you wet your finger and mm, mm, mm-hmm. hold against. A uh, Ben Franklin invention. Yeah, oh yeah, that's right. Um, but then he created this, this is the most fascinating to me, he created this new instrument that he called a uh, rotation, which was a four-foot wooden box, and he put croquet balls inside, and you cranked it, and the box turned, and those croquet balls bounced around and against each other, so this wooden sound of wooden balls hitting each other and against the wooden box. He wanted that sound. So he was interested in timbre and different, getting Very much. Yeah, yeah. And then probably most fascinating is uh, he used... He created, uh, if you know much about like Luigi Rosolo in the early part of the 20th century, created all these noise and toners. He basically recreated that, used some CO2 to create a hisser. So you get this <laughs> sound coming out at one point in the orchestra. So it's kind but of I have exotic. A clip. Yeah. I've got a clip if you want to, we can play now a little bit. You can hear that glass harmonica and some of these new sounds that he was playing with. I love the glass harmonica. That's great. It's a gorgeous sound. Yeah, it is. But did you think that these, so it's fun to have these new novel sounds. Did you think that they really, were they integrated well or did they kind of stick out like, hi, I'm a glass harmonica being played. Hi, I'm hissing CO2. I I would say they stuck out. I know when I was listening the first time and the organ came in and it just about blew me away. Uh, It, it came out of nowhere and then it then it disappears for quite a while and kind of comes back so it does seem i don't want to say contrived but it does seem like not that that well integrated it's sort of like i've got a bunch of new ideas and i want to put them in and i can't quite find the best way to do it so i'm going to show off all my cool new things yeah uh, that's kind of how i felt about it as well that he had the potential to have some really cool ideas, yeah. the potential to have some really great sounds, and the way in which he would mix those sounds with the strings, I think could have been really fascinating. Yeah. And then he just he just kind of peppers it on, like every once in a while, you get, oh, isn't this nice? And, and he kind of pulls other things back so you can hear those instruments, and then they go away and the rest of the orchestra keeps playing. Right. Yeah, a good orchestrator, and certainly that that is strong. Uh, I know I was drawn definitely to the inscription or the, at the top of the first yeah. movement here which is a quote from Goethe uh, indeed I, am I a wanderer a pilgrim on the earth but what else are you and you had mentioned earlier about this being a piece trying to in a way recreating his journey from Vienna and Berlin to the US and that's kind of what this uh, Goethe quote is getting at as well a pilgrim on the earth what are you and kind of questioning uh, yeah yeah so yeah it's a wonder it's a wonderful inscription 
listening to it though i didn't get a sense of <laughs> the, the journey <laughs> that not even the meandering lines the melodic lines that sort of just flow in and out and the, especially that the the beginning da 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 sort of sounds like the bird prophet or what's that piece by schumann there's a there's a piece by schumann that also does that uh that motive keeps coming back and forth this up and down mm-hmm. melodic idea no guess not uh, no <laughs> <laughs> i i'm gonna vouch for the piece because i like the there's we know just if you know anything about talk like we just said he likes fugues and there's a fugue in here which is pretty great and it's a fast fugue that's yeah. the third movement it has a fugue in it so i'm always a sucker for some good fast contrapuntal orchestral play uh oh yeah no absolutely i love that piece uh, that section of this piece i think that's really uh in some ways the most successful for yeah. me the most yeah. successful part is that uh, to me it took a while to get into it <laughs> that's that's the same thing with like the piston too we, yeah yeah it's kind of that it's just it's slow and plodding yeah, and plod- i wasn't sure where it was going <laughs> And then about three or four minutes in, it starts to pick up, and I'm going, okay, I think I know where you're going. Yeah. Um, and he has some great tunes. There's some really lovely tunes. Um, I think he kind of vacillates throughout the piece between these very catchy melodies and these long passages where you're kind of harmonically lost, and then he'll come back and give you another kind of enjoyable melody. Mm-hmm. But that final fugue in the, the third movement, I think, is the most successful section. Yes, which I think is the kind of you know, very much analogous to what we said with Piston. The the fast music was good. The changing meters, the kind of the rhythmic excitement uh, and interplay was very strong. But the the slower parts are less successful. I think they're a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Plodding is a good word. Uh, sometimes listless even in spots. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we kind of downplayed these new instruments because that's what all the critics at the time we're talking about but i think even considering the new instruments uh, the way that he combines timbres i think is really successful he, as an orchestrator i think he's very successful mm-hmm. definitely and uh, so that uh, i don't know I, for that it's at least worth hearing i'd say uh but it's hard to hear and that's one of the you know as we get to our analysis or our evaluation at the end here there's no easy recording to get of this. You can you can hear the record. I just listened to the ones on YouTube, uh, even though they was recorded and see recorded on Capitol shortly after premiered it, and it was part of a series in the '90s. But it's har- probably hard to find now. So yeah, it just sort of dwindled and faded. Uh, but yeah, it's basically become a footnote kind of in yeah. Talk's biography that. Oh, yes, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for the Third Symphony. It's not a piece of his that's regularly performed. It's not a piece that people point to as an exemplar of his style. No. So maybe we should go ahead and move there and talk about our decision about if this is a hit or a miss. Hit or miss. So, Andrew, I'm really curious. What what did the uh, critics, what would critics say about this piece? So I went ahead and got the, the New York Times review from November 25th, 1956. This is uh, Howard Taubman. And he kind of compared the use of these new sounds to what Varese was doing and what John Cage was doing. And this is how he concluded. The fundamental question remains, 
Was all this preoccupation with new sonorities necessary to Mr. Talk's theme? The composer, who is the sole authority on what he hears in his imagination, has the right to register a loud affirmative. The listener has the equal right to insist that the results did not justify the effort. Not one of Mr. Talk's new sonorities added to the expressive content of his music. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Tomlin was uh, not a fan. No. <laughs> in no. the least. Uh, of this particular piece. So he seemed to have the same feeling that we did, that the that it, these were interesting sounds and interesting instruments and timbres, but they didn't really add much to the piece. They didn't really help the piece. It was sort of a, right. I don't know if it was a weak piece or just didn't do much for him, but uh, yeah, it didn't really add a whole lot. It was not a positive listening experience. It was not a positive listening experience. No. <laughs> uh I don't know. I uh, I'm going to be a little more generous here. If I, if we're going to call this a, a hit or a miss, I uh, can I do kind of in the in between? Is there like a <laughs> a, a, a mitt or somewhere uh, somewhere in between here? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, because I did I did like there were parts I liked. Uh, probably the same thing. I have to go back and listen to what I said about the piston, but probably similar feeling. Should this piece be perform sometime yeah it's award-winning why not so i i put it that way so i come down the other side yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't keep my attention yeah. um to me the piston was much more successful overall uh than this piece this wasn't a piece i listened to and then went i need to listen to the other six symphonies of Ernst talk no, and see what he true. was doing it, it didn't draw me in that much that's true and it didn't seem like with all the other going back to our third symphonies all the other american third symphonies that we could play I would much rather hear, for instance, the Piston or the Copeland or the Roy Harris or the Florence Prize. I mean, there are a lot of other Ives. third symphonies. The Ives Third Symphony is mm -hmm. obviously top of the list. <laughs> of but course. no, but it didn't seem to stand out to me enough that I would really argue for this entering into the repertory. Yeah. I can I can see why it won. I can see why this particular jury would have been interested in it. But for me, I'm perfectly fine to move on. Yeah. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. The the one one maybe interesting thing I'll say is this is another winner. We've had only a couple now, but another a non East Coast winner. So this is because yeah. uh, he was the, a California composer by this point. So uh, I think that's something maybe they're broadening out a little bit, even though talk is still part of the still European based. But he um, is he isn't the same part of the old boys club right. that we've been seeing get right. awarded like. Oh, you know, it's so and so's turn. I don't. I don't think they were sitting around going, "Oh, it's Talk's turn." No, no, no. So this absolutely. Um, but I think it helped that it was premiered on the East Coast. That's true. To That's kind of true. draw attention, it wasn't like it was premiered in California and then. Fair point. Yeah, that's true. Well, you tease this Grove Dictionary, so I want to yes, yes read this summary from the Grove Dictionary because I think it is absolutely perfect in summarizing kind of Talk's place and in some ways the reaction that we had to this symphony. Uh, it said that talk was too modern for the American public, but he had become too old-fashioned in European terms to be able to build from a position of exile on the great successes of the pre-war years. Hmm. So just not in the right time, writing the wrong music at the wrong time, it sounds like. Yeah. And he didn't have, he wasn't known enough in the United States already. I mean, when right. someone like Schoenberg or Hindemith or even Korngold come over, to the United States, they're a known quantity. That's Talk true. shows up 
and people are going, who is this? And he doesn't continue in the avant-garde style that he had been known for. So people, I'm sure, were kind of like, how do we categorize, what do we think about Ernst Toch? Mm-hmm. Well, would you consider this work to be a conservative work then in th- in the in its time, I guess, of 1955? I think in its time. Yeah, yeah I thought it was fascinating that Taubman was comparing this to Verez and Cage. Well, they're and like night and day. I mean. Night and day. I mean, sure, they're both inter- they're all interested in new sounds, but the way they go about those sounds is completely different. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that's a fair comparison. But who else in 1955 well, was writing orchestral pieces like this? Because what Cage and Ver- Verez were writing more chamber pieces and other types of things. So I don't know. Just trying to put it in its context. I can't. You think of any? Uh... Well, I think in terms of construction, it, we had said that it fits in all of these kind of mid-century yeah, American true. composers. I think the one thing that he's drawing on is, hey, look, he's using this weird thing with yeah. croquet balls. How do right. <laughs> how do we understand what it is that he's doing? Yeah. So I think that's the only comparison he could make. Yeah. Well, there it is. There's Ernst Talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. Uh, as always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulsers.com, where you'll also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about Ernst's talk. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at hpulitzers for links between episodes. And finally, join us next episode where we'll be exploring Norman Delajoyo and his composition Meditations on Ecclesiastes. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.